I know that many of you perhaps have never gone through the book of Job in its entirety, verse by verse like we have, and we are definitely in the home stretch, but there's more <laughs> to go. And tonight, we are looking at the youngest of the speakers. He's the final friend who speaks to the situation, and he's the youngest, and his name is Elihu. And I call the message Elihu's Apology so that you could see two uses of the word apology. Number one, Elihu's going to apologize because he feels like he maybe doesn't have the right to speak because he's young. And I'm going to comment on that in a second. And then there's a second part of the word, a little play on the word apology tonight, in a sense of making an apology, not in the sense of saying I'm sorry, but an apology in the early church and throughout really church history has been to make a defense for what you believe. A reasoned answer for the hope that you have. This is where the idea of apologetics comes from, and it's the Greek word apologia. So it, it looks just like the word apology, just with an I-A at the end. And that came to be known as making a reasonable, rational defense in kind of like a court of law setting for the hope that you have within you. And my prayer for you and me is that we'd be ambassadors of hope, that you would see yourself as an ambassador of hope. And I think Elihu is doing that, although sometimes he comes across a little strong, maybe even a little obnoxious, but he has some very relevant and important things to say. Before we jump in, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the group that's here tonight. We lift up all the families that are uh, doing the memorial service over at North Point tonight. It may just be concluding now. Uh, asking for your mercy and grace upon those families and as we think about Kobe Bryant's family and the baseball coach, I don't have all the names, Lord, but you know who they are, for your mercy in those situations as well, that this would be a wake-up call even to the nation, Lord. Not just to Southern California, not just the Inland Empire, but to our nation to get back to you. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Oh God, give us ears to hear what you would say to us tonight, and anyone who would hear this message through the video or audio or radio later, give us ears to hear what you would say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. So Elihu, uh, this is Job 32, verse 6. The son of Barakel, the Buzzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, 32.6 of Job, and you are old, therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. If you have the ESV or New King James, it says, to give you my opinion. So there is Elihu, he's the last of the human speakers in the book of Job. We will hear from God himself in the later chapters, but Elihu is the last of the human speakers, and in that culture, Young people, if you were in the uh, presence of an older group of men, especially like Job and his friends that seemed to be kind of like leaders of the society, you did not speak. You let the elders speak. And so Elihu is making an apology because he's young. And the young were really supposed to just treat the elders with respect and give deference to them and let them speak to a situation. But they've been speaking a long time, 
And as we saw last week, Elihu is a mad <laughs> individual. He's a little upset because he doesn't hear good answers coming to the problem of evil or to the situation of Job. And he doesn't believe that the three so-called comforters or friends have done a good job even defending God. So he feels compelled to speak. So he opens with an apology because he's a little out of order in terms of how the ancient uh, culture would work. It's kind of like if you're a little kid at a family you know, get-together, like let's say a Thanksgiving, and you finally get elevated to the big adult table. You know, some of you remember that time and you finally got away from the little kids and then you realize how boring the adults were and you want to go back to the little kids' table. Sometimes I want to sit at the little kids' table. They're, they're fun. You want those coloring things and all of that stuff. But he says that he was shy and afraid to speak out because he was young. And I will say to you that that's certainly something that we can dismiss young people kind of out of hand. You know, what do you know? Where have you been, kid? You know, that kind of thing. But young people do have something to say to us, and we are not to look down on the youth and believe that they have nothing good to share. In fact, God can use anybody, anytime, any way he wants to. And Jesus said, it's out of the mouths of infants that you have what? Perfected praise. And Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, have the faith of a child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So let us adults be careful. Because God, you know, remember when David, uh, I think it was Shimei in 2 Samuel, was throwing rocks at David and cursing him. And one of the mighty men of David said, let me just go over and cut this guy's head off. And David said, no. Who knows if he's speaking from the Lord? I don't know. Now that's humility. That's the king of Israel saying, maybe the guy has a message for me that I need to hear. Now that is keeping your heart open and not thinking that people that are younger than you or maybe you know, they don't have as much expertise in a given area don't have anything to say to you. They may just have a nugget for your life to put in your pocket, if not for now, for later. Amen? So we need humility. And so he was shy and afraid. Let me ask you, here's a point of application. Are some of you, some of you are shy. I know that, okay? Some of you are introverts. Other of you are extroverts. But some of you, your shyness makes you afraid. When you should speak up, you're afraid to speak up to a group of people. Maybe they're your peers. Or maybe there's someone that intimidates you and you are afraid to say something that you need to say to them because you can't even approach them. And when you approach them, <laughs> right? We get a little bit fearful of man and we all probably have a little bit of this or a lot of it in us. But look, the only one we should fear is God. Now verse 7 says, I thought age should speak. We've got to be careful how we say that to people who are older than us, by the way. And increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, verse 8, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. He's talking about kind of like how the Holy Spirit works in each of our lives to speak to our spirit so we can speak his truth. I'll come back to that in a second. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me. 
I too will tell you or tell what I think. Uh, advanced years doesn't always mean advanced learning. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Sometimes I've met some people that are older, but I kind of wonder if they were paying attention in class, if you know what I'm saying. See, you could be older, but maybe you haven't learned what you're supposed to learn. So being advanced in years doesn't automatically mean that you're advanced in wisdom. And the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. And wisdom is really to know God's way and then to obey it. And so Elihu's name, if you remember, means he, Yahweh, is my God. And so uh, he's going to give some key insights into Job's suffering that the three older, quote-unquote, comforters did not give. They gave the age-old traditional wisdom of the world. If you are suffering, Job, you have secret sin in your life, and that's why you're suffering, and if you just confess it, then... God may forgive you and everything will be better. And Job keeps saying, no, I haven't. I haven't sinned. I'm blameless. I don't know what I did. Where is God? I need a mediator. I need a redeemer. Help. And the three friends just keep coming back to the same tired old arguments. Are you tired of some of the old tired arguments in the culture? Are you sick of it? With the talking heads saying the same things over and over again that never give us wisdom. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, that one of the gifts of the Spirit, a manifestation of the Spirit, is the word of wisdom. It's given for the common good, and it comes through the Spirit. So there is a way that God can speak to our spirit, and I think this is what Elihu is after, even though this spiritual gift wasn't uh, codified like this or explained like this. In this context, wisdom can de be defined as the God-given insight into the mysterious purposes and workings of God in and through Jesus Christ. The word of wisdom is giving the insight into God's will and ways to someone through your spirit in a moment that's supernatural. And I do believe that God does that. And I think that sometimes he does that for me from the pulpit. There'll be things that I did not prepare to say, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will give me an insight in the moment. And this could happen for you in a situation or in a moment of prayer or as you're ministering to a person. And of course we got to be careful and we, we got to be really, really careful that you know we don't tell somebody, the Lord's telling me to tell you this unless we really know that. But I think what we can say is that God does speak. And he says, behold, I waited for your words, 11. I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you, verse 12. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. Do not say we found wisdom, God will rout him, not man. That's a cop-out, says Elihu. For he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. They are dismayed. They answer no more. These guys have quieted their mouths now. Words have failed them, the so-called comforters, the three older guys. And I shall wait because they do not speak because they stop and answer no more. Remember, by being silent, you were basically saying your opponent had won. And so Elihu couldn't stand for that. He said, I too will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion, 17. 
For I, I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins it is about to burst. If you put new wine into old wineskins, it'll burst the old wineskins. New wine into new wineskins, the gases of the new wine, as it ferments, will expand the wineskin. And here's the image. Elihu says, the, if this has been bubbling in my belly for however many chapters now, and I just gotta let it out, I'm about to burst. I gotta speak. And there's times when we have held our tongue and the Holy Spirit's helped us to hold our tongue and we feel like all of a sudden we're like a volcano. It's just gonna, it's just gonna blow. <laughs> and I understand that. Jeremiah described himself that way. He said in Jeremiah 20 verse 9, if I say I will not remember God or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. I will just say to you, when it comes out, just make sure it's the Spirit driving it, <laughs> right? Sometimes some of us are good at we hold in emotion, and we, and we bury it. Anybody out there, are you a, a, a sweeper? Do you sweep stuff under the rug? until there's a lump in the middle of the living room under the carpet. And you're a sweeper. You sweep it, and you sweep it, and you stuff it, and you sweep it, and then all of a sudden, somebody, you know, says, hey, we're out of butter, and you blow. What do you mean we're out of butter? We're always out of butter when you're the last And you just go off, and people are like, what in the world happened? Dogs in the neighborhood are howling. Coyotes are howling. I mean, what? And that's not a healthy way to live, right? You've got to find some, some good pace there with balancing these things. But Elihu, he says, man, I, I've got to speak what's on my heart. He says, I, for I do not know how, uh, go back to uh, verse 20, let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one nor flatter any man. That's when you know that you're speaking truth, when you're not worried about being partial to somebody or flattering somebody. You're not under the pay of somebody, so to speak. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. There's a way in communication sometimes where we pander to our audience. We're all guilty of it in some way. But you know what? We need to be careful that we're not saying things in a certain way because we're biased or we're looking to flatter somebody or we know, well, this person has a little bit more influence, so maybe I'll say it this way. we got to be careful with that. Now, we got to be careful how we speak truth to people because we're to speak truth in love, but I think you get the point. And the main thing we're to do is to preach the word in season and out of season, right? However, now you could say the... 32.6 and the following verses were addressed to the so-called aged comforters, all right? The next address, and we'll dive into chapter 33, is directly to Job. Elihu speaks to Job. He says, however, now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. You could say, he's saying to Job, don't tune me out. Don't tune me out because I'm young. Listen to my words. You know, oftentimes when Jesus spoke in the Gospels, he said, he who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. In the book of Revelation, when he addresses the seven churches, he who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? We need to hear what the Lord has to say. And the problem in a lot of the situations of life is that we don't really hear. You know, there's a way to hear, and then there's a way to hear with the intention of doing something with it. Jesus said, be careful how you listen, because it's important. Behold, now I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks, says Elihu 33.3. My words are from the uprightness of my heart. I'm being sincere. My lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Most commentators believe that Elihu is not just saying that God's his creator, like he is of all human beings, but that the words he is speaking are coming from the Spirit of God. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, right? Because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. If you've ever had uh, a home maybe refinanced, you know that an appraiser comes to assess the value of your property. And an appraiser will then, he'll look at everything, he'll look at your property, the condition of your home, uh, similar homes in the area, and come up with a value. A spiritual man or woman knows how to appraise value. They know how to give weight to what's really important. They know how to take a moment in a given day to say this is more important than that. That person is more important than this moment where I have to do whatever over here. Everybody with me? And so he says, Job, I want you to listen because I believe, and he's claiming something like you could say being inspired by God, not, not that he's a scripture writer here, but he believes he's speaking uh, what God would have him to speak to Job. And Job's been longing for some person to give him God's angle on things. And I pray that you and I are hungry to hear God's angle on things. And do you know how you do that? Open your Bible. There's a lot of material in here, right? So the main way that God speaks to us is through his word. And have you noticed? He often speaks to us directly where we are through preachers at a given moment. Even preachers on the radio who preached a sermon two years ago, we hear it on a given morning or afternoon and it speaks right to our situation because God's word is alive and God has the ultimate GPS system. Amen? <laughs> and I know, Lori, you have a story of, uh, well... We'll just say that you were not going God's way <laughs> and God got your attention through a radio program and turned you around that night and you pulled your car over right and got right with, with God before you crashed your car. That's very relevant to where we're headed. Um, praise God, right? So he says, refute me if you can, five. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I've been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you. That's not my purpose, says Elihu. I don't want to scare you. Nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Job, he might say, I know you have a lot on your shoulders already, and it is not my desire to add to your pain. 
hope that whenever you and I speak truth into people's lives, even if it's hard, hard truth, we always weigh our motive. Always weigh your motive. Why am I sharing this? What am I trying to accomplish by saying this? What's my end goal? Is it restoration? Is it that I want to remove burdens or do I want to add them to somebody? Do I want to take them off my neck to put them on somebody else's neck because I just am tired of carrying them so I'll give them to you? We have to ask ourselves in our communication, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? I hope that people are not afraid to talk to me or to you. I hope we don't terrify them. I hope we don't make them feel like we're unapproachable. Amen? And that's what Elihu is saying. He's sympathetic to Job. And he's saying, look, Job, even though I'm going to say some hard things, my intention is not to hurt you. I know you're in a tough spot. And it is easy to make commentary when you're looking at somebody else on the ground. Somebody else who's gone through the disaster. But whoa, hold on. Because what would you want said if you were the one on the ground? That's what you have to consider. And look, we've all missed the mark on this, but God help us to learn. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, verse 8, and I have heard the sound of your words, I am pure. Now he's quoting Job, what, basically what Job has said over these chapters. You said, these are your words, I am pure without transgression. Transgression there means to step over the line. That's accurate. Job was not claiming that he was sinless, but he just couldn't imagine what transgression he had committed to deserve this terrible, severe, what he considered a punishment. Now, to transgress is like, a, a synonym is to trespass. So if you were walking along and there was a no trespassing sign and you saw it, you understood what it was saying, and you trespass, that's the idea of transgressing. It's, I know the line, I, I see the sign, but I'm still walking over the line because I think I'm special. And I don't see any video cameras around, Right? Where sin, the general word for sin, just means you're imperfect. It means to miss the mark, right? So Job is, uh, he's being quoted, but Job was saying, I, I don't know what I did to deserve this. I am innocent and there is no guilt in me. That may be pushing it a little far from what Job had said, but he was claiming innocence or blamelessness, which is no open charge against him in his life that he could think of. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. This is what Job was saying about God. He counts me as his enemy. You can write down Job 13, 27. He puts my feet in the stocks. This is like public shame or embarrassment. He watches all my paths. I feel like, says Job, that God won't take his eye off of me, but not for good, for evil. Now, what Elihu has done in verses 8 through 11 is essentially summarize Job's complaint for many, many chapters. Isn't it frightening when someone can summarize what you've been whining about for weeks in two points? <laughs> so basically what you're saying is this. Uh, yeah, I think, you, I think you captured it. <laughs> in two points? Yeah, you've been complaining for two months. I got two points. Because you've made them emphatically over and over and over again. Here they are. First... Job says, 
he's not guilty before God in the sense of transgression. Verse 9. Second, Job accuses God of treating him as his enemy and being relentless with him. That's verses 10 and 11. Essentially, Elihu has summarized Job's complaint in a couple of sentences. <laughs> and if Job is there, he's like, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> if you've ever been to any kind of counseling, uh, counselors can be pretty good at this kind of thing. You can go on and on and on and on. Finally, they say, okay, so let me understand you correctly. What you're saying is that your spouse ate the last piece of cheesecake. <laughs> I was trying to think of something good. I was thinking of a waffle, but anyway, piece of chocolate. I don't know. That's what you're, well, or have you ever been in a situation where it came down to finding out what the origin of an argument was, and you're like, it, it was the cheesecake. <laughs> what are we doing here? We just paid a counselor $85 to say we're mad about the cheesecake. And then the counselor says, get over it. <laughs> but Elihu, I want you to notice, Bible students, he was listening. Because he, he captured what Job was saying. He'd been listening and listening and listening. And he said, behold, let me tell you, 12, you are not right in this. For God is greater than man. You're not right to accuse God, Job, of what you're accusing him of. Why do you complain against him? Notice that Elihu starts with a defense of God. That he does not give an account uh, of all his doings. He doesn't need to check in with you, Job. Elihu calls out Job. Elihu's correction to Job is not that he's suffering for some secret sin, as the other so-called comforters, older guys had said. Rather, Elihu, very important students of Scripture, rather, he is accusing of Job, Job of being wrong for saying sinful things in the midst of his suffering. And there is a difference. He's not saying, Job, I believe you have some secret sin and it, it's bound to come out. He's saying, Job, you handled this wrong once everything started collapsing. Your accusations toward God and his throne and his ways were wrong. Everybody understand? And I know there are people who tell us, well, God can handle it and you can express honesty with God. And certainly we see that in the Psalms, so I'm not going to you know, say that that can't happen. But I still think we have to be careful with how we address the God who dwells in unapproachable light. Would you agree? So, yes, God is big enough to handle my questions and my frustrations, and I, and I certainly can't hide anything from him. But I think Elihu's point is well taken. That some, sometimes God is treated by people like he's some psychiatrist in a you know, white lab coat sitting somewhere where you can just kind of unload on him. I think, I think there, there's a need for more reverence. 14. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. Now, a second point is, and Joe's been wondering, does God speak to human beings? How come God won't answer my cry. Why won't he come down and answer the case? Well, Elihu argues that God goes through great efforts to communicate with a person, above all, to keep a person from going astray. 
Indeed, look at 14. God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. Now, some of you are saying, this is, this is the core of my question. How does God speak? I'm wondering. Well, he speaks, says Elihu, and we need to obviously take the whole Bible into consideration and know that first and foremost, we look to God's word, the inspired Bible, first and foremost. But notice this is what Elihu says. He says he speaks in a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds. These are four descriptions of times when you are either resting or you're in some sort of sleep mode, a dream, a vision of the night, sound sleep falls upon someone or they slumber in their beds. Then, 16, he, God, opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. If you have the ESV, NIV, New, Li New Living, it says, terrifies them with warnings. Result, that he may turn man aside from his conduct and what your Bible say? And keep man from pride. Now I want to be extremely careful how we address these uh, verses because Elihu does not have a complete canon. He doesn't have 66 books of the Old and New Testament, but he's mentioned the Spirit of God and he's mentioned these moments in a person's life when God may speak to them. Now, I'll tell you this, and I, and I want to say this by making sure we understand that not every dream is a message from God, and usually we dream about the last thing that we thought about before we went to bed, and we know food can play a part, and stress can play a part, and all of that. But there is biblical precedent for God speaking to people in the night watches, if you will. And I know there's been whole, all these books written on dream interpretation and trying to remember a dream if you like wake up in the middle of the night. And look, I think there's too much put into that. But I will say this. These verses are intriguing in the sense that, and maybe this will resonate with many of you, that there's been times when maybe I've kind of in that light sleep mode or uh, just about to fall out off to sleep or maybe in a moment where you know I had a very vivid dream and I just oftentimes go hmm and I can tell you I've had at least one dream I knew was a warning from God and I've had others that I've just kind of categorized as I don't know what to do with that and I don't know if that even means anything but it is interesting that if you see these verses for what they say, that God is opening the ears of men, 16, and seals their instruction. Now, whenever you see the word instruction in your Bible, I think it's clear to us what that means. If you merge it with the word warning, you have one of the New Testament concepts of instruction. These things were written, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 11, for our instruction what things were written well the wilderness wanderings of israel and how they failed the word of god romans 15 was written for our learning and an instruction so that we through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures might have hope 
So if God does do something like this, and maybe it's a Bible verse that percolates you know, later in the night after you heard it, maybe it's an idea, maybe you felt like the Lord spoke to your heart in a given situation, he seals the instruction for, instruction is for warning, specifically that he may turn aside uh, one from his conduct and keep him from pride. So here's my conclusion with this. My conclusion is that if God does this and it's clearly God, he is doing it as a warning to keep you from falling on your face. So there could be things in this setting, in this context, and remember, I'm telling you, the first place to go is the Word of God, and you got to be very, very careful with verses like this. But if you were to have something hang on to you, and, and you can't get rid of it, and it's bothering you, and, and it's something corrective, instructive, or warning, specifically to your own conduct, as if God were saying to you, don't you do that. Because if you do that, this is going to happen to you. And this is where your situation, Lori, is extremely relevant. Because you heard something that stopped you in your tracks and turned you around. And many of us, you know, I, I can tell you many, many stories where I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart. I was somewhere where I shouldn't have been in my first few years as a Christian. And God basically said to me, what are you doing? I've had times as close as I can get to an audible voice where I was a younger believer and God was calling me in the, into the pastorate where I felt God said, as close as you can get to an audible voice, Michael, don't do that anymore because I want to use you, but you can't live in two worlds. One time, yeah, you can, anybody over there? Yeah, okay. One time I remember I was at the beach and I'll just tell you, not in a very Christian setting, but I had become a believer, but many of my friends were not. And there was stuff going on, and I literally, I didn't have a ride. I literally walked away. And I didn't even know how I was going to get home from Newport Beach. But I just couldn't stay there because I was just under conviction from the Holy Spirit. Now, these situations in, in these verses right here, I think you get the main emphasis of them. If God does something in the night, so to speak. I think it would be uh, wise for us to conclude it's instructive with a uh, cup of warning, if you will. You can see, for example, in dreams uh, all the way through the book of Genesis given to patriarchs like Jacob, Joseph, the cupbearer and the baker, to Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar. Warning dreams come to Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. And... Uh, you can think of some others, I'm sure, as well. So God opens the ears and he speaks. Maybe he's spoken more times than we give him credit for. In my notes specifically, these warnings could bring fear and terror in order to turn man aside from sinful conduct or pride, which is the mother of all sin. Maybe the best way to say this is that God gives wake-up calls to turn us from error, the error of our ways, and to change our ways. Look at verse 18, because the thought continues. 
He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. If there's an authentic warning from God, verse 18 explains God's purpose in it. It's to rescue you. It's to say to you, don't go there, because if you go there, there's going to be consequences to that action. And that's part of how the world was set up, by the way. God gave Adam and Eve, he gave them the ability to be free moral agents. Let me explain. If I take these glasses right now and I throw them down the center aisle, there's going to be a consequence. If I put them on my eyes, there's a positive consequence. I can see better. If I throw them, there's a negative consequence. If I took this mug right now and I threw it at one of you, and I would never do that unless I was really mad. <laughs> no, just kidding. There could be a negative consequence. I want you to think about in the world that we live in, how many people make decisions, whether they're physical decisions, decisions with the mouth, things that we fail to do, um, actions that we take, negative or positive. Think, think about, just pause for a minute and think about how many things are moving around right now. Thoughts, actions, failure to do something, doing the right thing, doing the wrong thing. You, you can picture it in throwing something at something or wh whatever it may be. And, and think about how many things are going on right now. And people often say, and, I, and it's understandable, why didn't God stop this? Why didn't God do that? And I have similar questions. But I want you to think about how many things are going on. And think about the fact that God made us free of moral agents. Now, does God intervene at times? Yes. And what do we call that? Miracles. <laughs> right? And we've had miracles. And we celebrate miracles. And we pray to God for miracles. But if I miss with the hammer and hit my finger, I've rarely experienced a miracle. <laughs> I've experienced pain and blood and unpleasantness. See, this is part of what it means to be free and to be a person who can make decisions, free will. But God does speak to us, and man is also chastened with pain on his bed, 19. He gets warnings from God, and sometimes God's warning is pain. And with unceasing complaint in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, that's when I know I'm sick, and his soul, his favorite food, when I don't want pizza, something is seriously wrong. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones, which uh, were not seen, stick out. Uh, his bones, which were not all of a sudden become exposed. His once muscular body, symbolic of well-being and prosperity, wastes away. God can use sickness to get our attention. I can't explain it all to you guys. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, said God gave him, God gave him a thorn in his flesh to keep him from being prideful. God uses these things. I don't understand all the angles. I don't always know what God may have allowed or caused and what may just be the natural consequence of a fallen world and bodies that are not going to last forever. Everybody with me? But we are exploring the problem of evil in the book of Job and the power of the gospel. And this is some of the way the world works. And God 
sometimes has to use difficulty to speak to us. C.S. Lewis saw this truth, and he talks about God's megaphone is pain. Alistair Begg wrote a small section on this, very insightful, listen to this. For 60 years, successive generations have been helped by what C.S. Lewis wrote on the subject of pain and suffering. The sustained benefit is due in large measure to the fact that he brought to the problem a solid dose of Christian realism. This medicine may be more important now than ever. It is not uncommon to, uncommon to watch as television preachers inform their audiences that God does not want you to be sick. It is hard to imagine such an assertion proving to be an encouragement to the wheelchair-bound long-term sufferer of multiple sclerosis. At best, such preachers are confused. The Bible makes a clear distinction between the now of our earthly pilgrimage and the then of our heavenly home. A day is coming when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But as any honest observer of the human condition will admit, that day has not arrived. While most of us are uh, probably not facing the heartbreaking routine, routine of monotonous misery, as Lewis puts it, few of us are untouched by trials of various kinds. Although the trial may appear in the disguise of an enemy, in reality it may prove to be a friend. The biblical writer James encourages his readers when faced with trials to welcome them as friends rather than resisting them as intruders. Instead of running and hiding, we are to face them in the awareness that they come to prove us and to improve us. Lewis does not argue that suffering is good in itself. Instead, he points to the redemptive, sanctifying effects of suffering. 32 years of pastoral ministry, says Begg, have brought me into direct contact with those who experiences of pain and suffering have proved to be a severe mercy. And Lewis went on to call some of these things God's severe mercy. I think of a nuclear physicist in our church in Scotland who attended out of deference to his wife and three young daughters. He listened to the sermons with an air of polite indifference. He accepted a copy of John Stott's Basic Christianity, but remained secure in his scientific shell. It was only when his fourth child, a son, died at 11 months that the megaphone sounded. Recognizing that his worldview was inadequate to deal with the tragedy and loss, he found himself reaching beyond his shadow land to find himself caught up in the embrace of God who is there. By this terrible necessity of tribulation, God conquered his rebel will and brought him to the place of peace. It is also true that God uses suffering to wean his children away from plausible sources of false happiness. The Christian may grow, grow drowsy in the sun, but will never fall asleep in the fire or the flood. Each of us must recognize how easy it is to think little of God when all is well on the outside. But what a, when, what a change occurs when, for example, the biopsy comes back positive. A sharp blast of anxiety comes to shatter any illusions of self-sufficiency. How kind of God to rouse us and to bring us to the place of dependence. And so he says in Job 33, 2, and we're winding down. I'm sorry, 33.22. He says, His soul draws near to the pit, his life to those who bring death. 
If there is an angel, and now here's the final verses of the rescue from pain. If there is an angel, and many see Christ here, or the angel of the Lord perhaps, as mediator for him, and that's what Job was crying for, a redeemer, a mediator, one out of a thousand makes him unique to remind a man what is right for him. Then let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going to, down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Some see in this the angel of death is told, stop, you can't have him by the angel of life, if you will. One way to put it. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. This is what happens when God works in a life and that person responds to the pain by leaning into God. Then he will pray 26 to God and he, God, will accept him. This is huge. This is big. That he may see his face with joy and he may restore his righteousness to man. The result? He'll be a worshiper. He will sing to men and say, I've sinned and perverted what is right, and it's not proper for me. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, amen? He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see light. I'll tell you what, once you get saved, and you know your Redeemer lives, you become a worshiper, and you are not afraid to tell people how God has saved you. Amen? Behold, God does all these oftentimes, twice, three times with men or with a man to bring his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. God does it as a wake-up call so you might have abundant life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Keep silent. Let me speak. I got more to say. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire, notice, to justify you. If not, Listen to me, keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Father, thank you that ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ speaks the ultimate of redemptive suffering. The place where the Messiah suffered has become my place of redemption. His empty tomb, his triumphant resurrection, when it looked like all was lost, unimaginable pain and suffering at the cross, unimaginable pain and suffering by those who loved Jesus who were standing there or had run away. And Lord, you used it to bring life. Lord, we know these concepts in the book of Job are hard. They're not easy, but they're real. They're where we live. And they point us back to the most innocent sufferer of all, Jesus, the greater Job, a cross where you purchased our redemption and a hope that is well beyond this life and even the grave. May you give us courage and comfort as we lean into you. We know you're a God who speaks, and as we think about Elihu's eloquent apology, his answer to Job, there's great insight from a young man who was in love with you, and I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to grow from what we heard tonight for your glory. In Jesus' name.